So we're starting a new series today, but before I, I jump into that, just a few things I want to remind you of. One, today is our, our next welcome party. And so if, if you're new to uh, Fairfax or, or maybe you've been coming for a while, but haven't had an opportunity really to find out a little bit about uh, the history of this place, the vision of this place, mission, uh, kind of our identity, who we are, how we, how we function, uh, this is really for you. And uh, so I would encourage you, uh, some of you perhaps have already registered for this. If you haven't registered, but you'd like to participate, it's gonna take place right after the 11:15 service. And uh, I believe you can go out into the lobby at, at the Welcome Center. And uh, if you need to kind of get some help to where it is, because it's in kind of the back of the building where we're meeting community room three, uh, they can guide you back uh, to that. Uh, our next Fairfax Kids Baptism Workshop is May 15th. So, if you're a parent, if you have a child that you've been talking to about baptism or has been expressing some interest in that, this is a tremendous opportunity to be able to have them go through kind of a process to understand what baptism is all about, understand a little bit better. So take advantage of that. You can sign up for that on our website. May 21st is our Global 5K and uh, we always use our Global 5K to connect to some of our global partners. And this year, we're going to be using it to connect to one of our newest partners, Children of Promise. That's an amazing organization that uses sponsorship, child sponsorship, to bring hope into the lives of kids and families uh, around the world. It's their 30th anniversary this year, and uh, a number of the folks from their team, their staff, is going to be here. And uh, so if you want to be a part of that, you can get signed up on our website to be a part of the 5K. You don't have to run the 5K. You can walk the 5K. You can hop it. You can skip it. You can crawl along with me, whatever you want to do. Uh, but uh, I encourage you to uh, sign up and be a part. It's going to be a fun day. And then our next blessing of children is May 29th. Every child, we believe, is a precious gift from God. And the blessing of children is an opportunity for the church to affirm life, to affirm new life in our church, to offer blessing, and to commit to stand with adults in their parenting journey. And so if you'd like to participate in that, again, you can sign up uh, on our website. And then I just want to say um, a word of thanksgiving to all of you that, um, that give to this place. One of our core values is generosity. And everything that we do that advances the kingdom is because you live out that generous spirit. And so we're so thankful for you. Uh, if you want to give as an act of worship today, there are offering boxes that are in the back of the sanctuary. You can use those. Or you can always give online. Again, if you're watching online, if you're part of our online community today, uh, or if you're here in the sanctuary and it's just more convenient to do that, go to our website. Very easy process to be able to give to the ministry of this place. All right, so we're starting a new series this week in the book of Ephesians. And I'm incredibly excited about it. I, I went back over like all the series that I have records of that I've, I've preached. And even though I've preached a lot of sermons that have drawn on Ephesians, we've never, at least I couldn't find, where we have ever done a complete series on Ephesians. And so we're gonna spend eight weeks in this amazing, amazing book and unpack it and, and try to own it in just kind of a better way as, as a church. 
And uh, the story of how Paul came to Ephesus is really an interesting story. If you want to read a little bit more about that, uh, Acts 19 has the story of how he came to Ephesus and what the dynamics were when he came there. Ephesus was this huge, influential city. It was an epicenter of commerce and philosophy and education and religion and power. It was just this incredibly influential city. It was located in what's now modern day Turkey. And we went there uh, with a group from our church last October and got to see the ruins of Ephesus. And even the ruins of Ephesus are impressive. In its day, it was kind of one of the four most powerful cities in the world. And just like kind of great cities do today, they actually kind of were in competition with the other cities to, to get a leg up and to build a better library or better amphitheater or whatever it was. And even the ruins 2,000 years later of the city of Ephesus are just amazing. I've got just a few pictures that I wanted to share with you. This is uh, the ruin of the library in Ephesus and uh, just an impressive uh, just an impressive structure. And uh, this is the amphitheater. It was one of the largest amphitheaters in the known world at that time, just an incredible structure. And then this is a couple of shots of just the boulevards, just the grand boulevards in, in Ephesus. So just this amazing, amazing city that Paul goes in. I, I, I've talked about this before. It's, it's incredible to think about the boldness that it took for these early Christians to go into these centers of commerce and education and philosophy and to um, share the gospel and, and to do it expecting that things were going to change in these cities. And they did. Paul went into Ephesus and shared the gospel and it turned the city upside down and eventually it turned the world upside down. A church was started in Ephesus. Uh, people became followers of Jesus in Ephesus. Uh, new churches around Ephesus were started kind of out of that mother church. And so some amazing things happened. And then years later, after being imprisoned by the Roman government, Paul writes this letter back to the church of Ephesus. And uh, from what we know, it was probably what's referred to as a circular letter, which, which meant that it was not only read in the church in Ephesus, it was read in the churches that were around Ephesus as well. So it was just kind of passed from church to church to church, and it was read out loud. And this letter became part of the biblical canon and came to be known as Ephesians that we're going to be studying over the next eight weeks. And the book of Ephesians falls into two distinct halves. It's really an interesting book. Chapters one through three, so the first half of the book, is focused on the gospel story. Paul talks about how all of history came to you know, its climax in Jesus and in the creation of this multi-ethnic community of followers called the church. And then the second half of the book explores how this gospel story should affect and impact our story and every part of our story, our behaviors, our attitudes, our relationships, our community, our nation, our neighborhoods, our families, all of that. 
And in order to make this connection between the first half, and you see it so clearly, when we get to chapter four, you'll see it. In order to make this connection between the first half of the book that talks about this amazing salvation that God has provided for his people, this gospel story and its connection to our story, chapter four starts with the word, therefore. Therefore, as in, given everything that God has done and everything that God has provided, therefore, this is how you should live. This is how you should behave. These should be the kinds of attitudes. These should be the kinds of relationships. This is what your family should look like, all of that. Therefore, because of what God has done, therefore, this is how you should live this stuff out. Now, today we're looking at Ephesians 1. And chapter one is also, interesting enough, divided into two main sections. The first section focuses on the faithfulness of God. It's all about the faithfulness of God. The second section focuses on our faith response to the faithfulness of God. Now, usually when we talk about God's faithfulness, we tend to just focus on God's presence, right? We talk about how God will never abandon us during tough times, how God will always be with us. And all of that is, is true. We just sang about it today. But for Paul, God's faithfulness is not just about his presence. It's also about this amazing salvation that he has provided for us in the person of Jesus Christ. And in the opening verses of chapter one, Paul lays out what this amazing salvation looks like. And he rehearses the gospel story and he praises God for what he's done, all the amazing things he's done in Christ Jesus. And this is, this is what he says, starting in verse three. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves, talking about Jesus. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and all understanding. And he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ, to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment, to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. Now this is one of the most glorious panoramic views of the gospel story that you will see anywhere in scripture. It's filled with these incredible declarations of what God has done for us in Christ. In fact, in the Greek, this is kind of interesting, almost all of chapter one and certainly the section that I just read, basically they are all just one incredibly long run-on sentence. It's as if Paul doesn't even want to stop and take a breath in declaring all of this. So he just keeps adding comma after comma after comma after comma. I want to tell you more. I want to tell you more. I want to tell you more about this amazing salvation that God has provided. 
Now, this section of scripture is so theologically thick that it's easy to kind of get lost in all of Paul's declarations. So let me simplify it a little bit by telling you that the key verse to all of this is verse three, right at the beginning of Paul's declaration. Paul starts all of this by saying that God has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing. Now, notice that blessed is past tense. He has blessed us in the spiritual realm with every spiritual blessing. Paul's reminding us that if you're a follower of Jesus, if you've put your faith in Jesus, that you are not waiting for God's blessing. You've already been blessed. That when you put your faith in Jesus, you are united with Christ, which means that whatever is Christ's is yours as well. That you have already been blessed because you've been united with Christ. And so everything that belongs to Christ belongs to you. That's why throughout this passage, Paul just keeps using the phrase, in him. He uses it over and over again. In verses four through six, Paul says, in him, we have been chosen to be holy and blameless, talking about Jesus. In him, we have been predestined to be adopted as his sons and daughters. In him, we experience God's glorious, glorious grace. And then in verse seven, Paul says, in him, we have redemption through his blood. In him, we have forgiveness of sins. In him, in Jesus, we have the riches of his grace. In him, we have all wisdom and understanding. And then verse 11, we didn't read it, but Paul says, in him, we were chosen for the praise of his glory. All of this, because we are in him, that we are in Christ. When you're united with Christ, when you're in him, you already have every spiritual blessing. We are not waiting on blessings from God. We already have every spiritual blessing, which means that in Christ, there is no wound that cannot be healed. There is no brokenness that cannot be repaired. There is no habit from which we cannot be set free. And God's faithfulness to you is not something that you earn. This is so important because 2000 years later, we continue to struggle with this. And I grew up in a church that preached the gospel, but at times there was an attitude in the church that had this sense that God's faithfulness and God's blessing was something somehow that you could earn. But God is not faithful to you because of your moral performance. He's not faithful to you because you've done something to earn it. Think about it. Paul's moral performance wasn't so awesome. Think about Paul's narrative, his history that brings him to this point. As a fire-breathing, fanatical Christian hater, Paul put people in prison. Paul had people killed. And yet he is absolutely confident in the faithfulness of God. How is that possible given his past? Because Paul had come to understand that God's faithfulness is not something that you earn, that it's a gift and our sense of God's faithfulness becomes very, very fragile when we think it's something that we can earn through our moral performance. Think about it. Just think about the whole concept of performance and, and what we can get through our performance and how 
performance works. And like any area of life, like anything you earn through your good performance, you can lose through your bad performance. And that's true in every area of life. That's true in athletics. Whatever you earn with your good performance, you can lose with your bad performance. That's good in academics. Whatever you earn with your good performance, you can lose with your bad performance. That's good in our jobs, in our vocations. That whatever we have accomplished, whatever ladder we have climbed, whatever we have done because of our good performance, we can lose because of our bad performance. That's true in every area of life. And we know that if we got something because of our performance, then if our performance slips, if we lose a step, if we slow down, if we're not quite as creative as we once were, if we make the wrong decision at the wrong time, we can lose it all. That's why the things that we attain through our performance always leave us with this kind of low-level anxiety and fear. It's the nature of performance that when you know what you have is the product of your performance, there is this, sometimes it comes to the surface and it's not low level, but even when it's not at the surface, there's this kind of low level anxiety, this low level fear that we have. That, that which we earn through our performance, we know we can lose through our performance as well. And the same is true with God's faithfulness. If we think that God is blessing us somehow because of our moral performance, then God's blessings rise and fall on our recent moral performance. So when we have a good week, we feel like we deserve the blessings of God. But when we have a bad week or a bad month or a bad year, then we begin to wonder about the blessings of God and we begin to wonder about the faithfulness of God and will God be faithful to us given what my week has been like, given what my month has been like, given what this year has been like, given the fact that I have not always been in the yes position of God, like will God still be faithful? Because if this hinges, if this rises and falls on our performance, then it leaves us with this low level anxiety and fear that maybe, 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 maybe this is something that we can lose. But God's faithfulness is not the product of our performance. God is always faithful, always faithful, no matter what. Can I just get an amen for that? That God is always faithful no matter what. And when we put our faith in the faithful one, which is what this chapter is all about, is putting our faith in the faithful one, we experience his faithfulness. Which leads to the second part of chapter one. It starts in, in verse 15. And it is this amazing prayer that Paul prays for the church in Ephesus and for the other churches that are gonna be reading this. Just this amazing prayer. And here's what he says in this prayer, starting in verse 15. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus. Now, there are some of the people that he's writing to that he knows because he lived in Ephesus for a number of years and saw people come to Christ. But the church has no doubt grown and other churches have started who are now receiving this circular Letter And so he's writing to some people that he knows, some people that he doesn't know, but he has heard. He's heard that they have put their faith in Jesus. 
And so he says, for this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking, keep praying, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints and his incomparably great power for us who believe. The pow that power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things, talking about Jesus, and God placed all things under his feet and appointed him, Jesus, to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Now, the first thing I want you to notice about this prayer, this amazing, amazing prayer, is that I want you to notice that Paul doesn't say a thing about the circumstances that the Ephesians are going through. And that's striking because we know that the people in Ephesus and in the other cities that were around there and the other churches that were around there were going through some really, really difficult, awful stuff. Some of them were losing their homes. People were dying of disease. Uh, there was suffering that they were experiencing at the oppressive hand of the Roman government. Like all of this stuff was going on that was like really, really crazy stuff. And yet that's not what Paul prays about. And what's interesting, when you read through the prayers of Paul, because in almost every letter that he writes to almost every church, there's a prayer in that letter, like this is what I am praying for you. In almost all of Paul's prayers, he rarely prays about the circumstances that the believers are facing. Now, it's not that we shouldn't pray about all that stuff. We definitely should pray about all that stuff. And there's lots of examples in the Bible that encourage us to take the tough stuff that we are going through and to pray for God to intercede in the midst of that. All kinds of prayers related to that. But for Paul, most of his prayers were focused on something bigger than the circumstances that people were facing. He's focused on what's happening in the heart of a person in the midst of the circumstances that they are facing, whatever those circumstances are. And in this particular prayer, Paul is praying that those who have put their faith in Jesus would understand the riches that are theirs in Christ. Sometimes um, we put our faith in Jesus. I know a lot of you have put your faith in Jesus and uh, some of you maybe have, have not yet made that step and I pray that that's a step that you will take very, very soon. But sometimes we put our faith in Jesus and we don't really understand the riches that are ours because we have put our faith in Jesus. And Paul doesn't want that to be true for these believers. So basically he prays three things for them in this amazing prayer that I hope you become familiar with. First he says, verse 18, I pray that the eyes of your heart 
may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which you have been called. Another translation says that you might know the hope of his calling. I pray that you might know the hope of God's calling. Paul's talking about the hope, the confidence, the assurance, the boldness that comes from knowing that in spite of our weaknesses, in spite of our struggles, in spite of our frailties, in spite of our sin, that the God of the universe has called us to be a part of his mission to redeem and restore the world. Now, I know sometimes we don't feel like we are worthy of that call, but he has called us. That's what Paul is saying. Like, let that bring you hope. Let that give you boldness. Let that give you courage. Let that give you assurance. Because even though you may be struggling right now with some stuff, even though there's some things where you maybe are struggling to be in the yes position to God, do not forget that you have been called. You have been chosen to be a part of the mission, God says, that I'm on to redeem the world. Now, here's the thing. Not only does that mean that you and I, in spite of our brokenness, have been called, it also means that everyone you know has been called, including that person that you cannot stand. Like the person that drives you crazy, that, that you can't stand to be around at work or, or that you're sitting, no, not that you're sitting next to, but anyway, just like that means them as well. That means the person who you've become convinced is never, ever going to put their faith in Jesus. Like that they're a lost cause. It's just not going to happen. That includes them as well that every person you know has been called by God to be a part of this amazing mission to redeem and restore the world. They have been called as well. And when you realize that, it changes everything. It changes the way you look at that person especially that person that you find it hard to be around, you find it hard, whatever it is, like it changes the way you look at that person. You begin to see them as someone who has been called by God. Like they too have been called. They too have been chosen. They too have a purpose that God has for their life that they may not yet be living out. It changes the way you respond to that person. It changes the way that you pray for that person because you begin to pray that they will respond to this calling that God has on their life and that they will live out their true purpose in life. Like it just changes the way when you realize that every single person that you meet that you drive by on the beltway that honks at you and gives you the finger, that every single person is someone who has been called by God to live out a purpose that is greater than themselves. Secondly, Paul says, I pray, what a prayer. I pray that you may know the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Now, I want you to notice that it doesn't say the riches of your glorious inheritance. It says the riches of his, talking about God, of his glorious inheritance. 
I, I want you to do a little thought exercise with me uh, today. I want you to imagine that you have the task of giving Elon Musk a present that would take his breath away. That would absolutely, and, and, it, and, you, you, and you don't have $40 billion to buy him Twitter, plus he already has that, so that, that, he doesn't need that. So what do you give him, what do you give Elon Musk that causes him to open your gift and gasp and say, I've always wanted one of these. Like I've always wanted this. What could you possibly give Elon Musk that he would treasure that much? Now, in this kind of thought exercise, let me go one huge step further. What if the person that you were giving this gift to was the God of the universe? What could you possibly give the most powerful being in the universe, the one who created the universe and everything in it that would bring him absolute delight, that would take his breath away? In all the universe, what is there that God could possibly treasure that much? Well, according to Paul, it's you. You are the one who he treasures that much that you are God's glorious inheritance, that you are the one that causes God to say, this is what I've always wanted. Before the foundation of the world was laid, what God has desired more than anything else is you. He's desired to be in relationship with you. He's desired to be united with you. And Paul wants these believers to know that. And he wants us to know that. He wants you to know that you are God's glorious inheritance. I know you don't feel sometimes, and I don't feel sometimes like the glorious inheritance of God, but we are God's glorious inheritance. Thirdly, Paul says, I pray that you may know his incomparably great power for us who believe. Paul is saying that when you put your faith in Jesus, you get this incredible power that you never knew that you had. And then he spends the rest of the chapter basically describing that power. That's what the rest of the verse is. Let's just look at it again. That power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things, this is the power, God placed all things under his feet, appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. So just think about this, break that down, right? Verse 19, Paul says that, this is the power that brought you to faith in Jesus. Like this power that he's talking about is the power that brought you to faith in Jesus. He's saying that as followers of Jesus, we can't even brag about putting our faith in Jesus. Like we can't even stick our chest out and go, well, you know what? I've put my faith in Jesus. No, he's saying even the capacity to put your faith in Jesus. Even the power to put your faith in Jesus is a gift that God gives. And then in verse 20, Paul says, this is the power that raised Jesus from the dead. Paul wants them and us to know that the same power 
that raised Jesus from the dead is at work in us, which means that God can make dead things come back to life in our lives, that he can take relationships that are dead and bring them to life again, that he can break, he can take hopes that are dead and done and bring them to life again. He can take dreams that you gave up on that are dead and bring them to life again. And then in verses 21 through 23, Paul says that this is the power by which God rules the universe and everything in it, including the church, including us. So how do we know How can we come to know the riches that are ours in Jesus? How can we come to know that when we put our faith in Jesus, that these are the riches that are ours? Well, Paul actually tells us in verses 17 and 18. That's the first part of his prayer. It's really the part that covers all of the rest of this. He says, I keep asking, in other words, I keep praying that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious father may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you might know him better. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. Paul prays that the Holy Spirit might give them the wisdom, might give them a revelation about the riches that are theirs, that are ours in Christ. Paul prays that the Holy Spirit might enlighten their hearts so that the riches that are theirs in Christ are not just something that they're cognitively aware of, but that it will become so real to them that they can taste it. They can smell it. They can see it. That's his prayer. He says, I I don't want you just to know this stuff cognitively. He's saying, I I want you to know it experientially. I I want you to be able to smell it. The salvation of God. I want you to be able to taste it the salvation of God. I want you to be able to see the salvation of God. Now that all sounds incredible, but how do we position ourselves, right? This is always the question. I understand that God through his Holy Spirit wants to work in my life in so many ways, including helping me to taste and see and smell and experience his salvation. I know that's what the Holy Spirit wants to do, but how do I position myself so that the Holy Spirit can do what the Holy Spirit wants to do? Like, how can I put myself in a position that, that the Holy Spirit is free to work and do that which he wants to do? Well, let me give you, there's so many responses to that, but let me give you one very simple thing you can do. It may be a good place to start. And it's gonna seem so simple that some of you are gonna wonder if like this really 
possibly could work. But here it is. And it's simply this. Pray this prayer for yourself. If you want to position yourself for God's Holy Spirit to work, then pray for God's Holy Spirit to work. And sometimes it's helpful when we don't have all the words for God to be able to give us the words to pray. Because sometimes we don't know what to pray or how to pray or we don't feel like praying. And so Paul offers this gift to the church at Ephesus. But he's also offering it to us. You know, a little over two years ago in February, I've talked about this before, of 2020, right before the pandemic hit and all that stuff was going on. We did this little series, little short series on Psalms. And I remember in the midst of that series, God speaking to me pretty clearly and saying, I want you to start praying the Psalms. I want you to take the words of the psalmist, these beautiful prayers that are so rich and powerful and raw and hard and glorious and difficult and all of that. And Rod, I just want you to start praying them. And so I started praying them every day, five psalms a day, 150 psalms every month can pray through the psalms. And it was just so, I continue to do that. I did it today, five psalms. It's just so helpful because it gives words oftentimes that I just don't have. It expresses to God things that I want to express to God, but I'm not quite sure sometimes how to express it to God. So I just pray the Psalms. But there are more prayers in Scripture than just the Psalms. We've talked about the Lord's Prayer and other prayers, but the prayers that oftentimes get overlooked are these prayers that Paul prays to all these churches, people who are going through exactly the same kind of stuff that we're going through, or at least in a, in a different kind of way, in a different season, but still going through tough stuff just like we go through and saying, this is, this is my prayer. And so I would say a place to start if you want the Holy Spirit to give you wisdom and revelation and enlighten your heart about the riches that are yours in Jesus I would just start by praying that and asking for that and this prayer of Paul's kind of becomes this when we personalize it God I pray that you will give me a spirit of wisdom and revelation so that I can know you better because that's what I want more than anything else, regardless of 
what I'm going through, regardless of the circumstance of life. Like I want to know you better. And I pray that the eyes of my heart may be enlightened in order that I may know the hope of your calling. I pray that I can walk in the reality that I am your glorious inheritance. I pray that I can know the incomparably great power that is mine in Jesus. Amen. God, we say amen. We say yes to that prayer and to others that you have given us in your word. But we want to put our faith in Jesus, but we want to know the riches of what it means to put our faith in Jesus. We want to drive our stake in the ground and and say, "This, this is where I put my faith. In the midst of everything of life, this is where I plant my flag. And I want to know, I want to know, I want to know what is mine in you. And so, Lord, give us faith. Allow us to lean in to you and to walk in the reality of who we are in Christ. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. Would you stand together?